Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, Blanchard Valley Hospital has been named one of the best in the state, according to Newsweek's latest rankings. BVHS President CEO Myron Lewis explains what that recognition means for both patients and staff. Also this morning, it's something you don't see very often on the local ballot this election day. A Democrat running in a contested race for city council. But does he stand a chance? Conversation with third ward candidate Sean Mason. And Sarah Sisser pays us a final visit as executive director of the Hancock Historical Museum with a preview of upcoming events for November and the holiday season. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, November 1st. 2023. Among the items here, the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, was it yesterday or was it the day before yesterday we were mentioning the story about the cities in America with the fastest growing population? Um, we have kind of a follow-up to that. Uh, This is actually the uh, mirror image of that list. Um, U.S. Census data uh, showing the least populated American towns. The ones that have seen the greatest population declines over the uh, past decade. Uh, Let's see here. The Mustang, Texas is the... I guess the top of that list or the bottom of that list, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it. But the the biggest population decline of the past decade, Mustang, Texas. There are no residents of that town now. It is uh, it is a ghost town. This actually this list came out yesterday uh, for Halloween, you know, ghost towns and all of that. But I thought it was interesting because, again, we were just the other day talking about the cities with the fastest growing populations This would be the exact opposite of that. Mustang, Texas. uh, Also, a couple of other towns with zero residents, officially, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. South Parkview, Kentucky, and Hoot Owl, Oklahoma. Now, that actually sounds like someplace that I want to move to. I wouldn't want to move to Hoot Owl, Oklahoma. (laughs) I think I will. uh, That that may be where where I retire someday. Hoot Owl, Oklahoma. Uh, 92 American towns lost half of their population, half in the past decade. Um, Corning, Missouri, saw a 93% decrease in population. They're not at zero, but they went from 15 people down to just one. So one person in uh, Corning, Missouri. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, if nothing else, you don't have a a housing shortage in those uh, towns. That's, I guess you don't have to worry about (laughs) outrageous real estate prices due to low inventory. There should be plenty of places (laughs) that, that's one of the reasons why I want to go to Hoot Owl, Oklahoma. There you go. I've got a new uh, retirement plan now. Hoot Owl, Oklahoma. Uh, Let's see. You know, over the past several days, there have been uh, several tributes. Uh, I've seen them online to uh, Matthew Perry after his passing over the weekend. Still a shocker that uh, one of the cast members of the 90s iconic series Friends is no longer with us. I mean, it just doesn't seem like um, those actors, those people that we remember you know, as, you know, the uh, young 20-somethings that were, you know, kind of the defining group of the 1990s uh, could be gone. But anyway, uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. A new survey on the best television era, the best decade for television. Nearly one-fifth of the folks in this survey claim that the 80s and 90s were the best decades for television. 19% say that was the best era for uh, for classic TV shows. 15% said the early 2000s. 10% claim the 2010s. 10%, just 10% 
said the 70s were the best decade for television. And I would think, I mean, if you had to, you know, if you asked me what was the best decade for television, I mean, think about the uh, 1970s and all the great shows uh, of the uh, 1970s, from the groundbreaking shows like All in the Family to you know great comedies like Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and you know Three's Company and Taxi and um, you know, just go on and on and on in the uh, 1970s. I think uh, that would be the decade that I would pick, but that's uh, only 10 percent. Uh, only seven percent that we uh, believe that we are currently living in the best era for television. And, of course, television is very different now than it was uh, years ago. I mean, years ago, you had the big three networks. That was pretty much it. And today, uh, the big three networks are basically filled with game shows and reality shows and competition reality shows. And uh, most of the scripted television is on uh, streaming platforms and is very, very good. But... uh, only 7% believe that we are currently living in the best era for television entertainment. Out of a list of 35 iconic TV shows, the two most watched and beloved shows are the Giants from the 90s, Friends being one, and Seinfeld the other, with 43 and 40% respectively of the vote as to the best TV show ever. Other shows that people... Uh, will stop to watch. You know, if that if we ask you that question, what is the one TV show if you're flipping through the channels or if it comes up on your recommendations that you would just you can't resist, you got to watch. Uh, Friends and Seinfeld number one and number two. Then comes Game of Thrones with thirty seven percent. Three's Company thirty six percent. Frasier thirty six percent. The Office. Uh, the Office and, and Frasier tied with Three's Company with 36%, all at 36%. And MASH, uh, again, another uh, great show of the 70s. Oh, it was early 80s, too. But when I think of MASH, I think of the 1970s. But anyway, uh, MASH with 35%. So some of the uh, iconic TV shows uh, right up there with Friends, the best of the best of all time. Uh, let's see here. A couple of other uh, items among the first things you need to know this morning. The most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. In the post-pandemic era, there has been a uh, pushback on the tipping culture. It seems that during the uh, pandemic, we were tipping everyone. You know, because it was just that time working. You know, it was tough uh, to keep your job and... Uh, People had to work through the pandemic and put their own personal health at risk and so on and so forth. So we were tipping everyone. Now there's this pushback against a tipping culture. uh, And there are some who suggest that maybe the whole idea of tipping should just go away and just pay our servers and and things like that uh, a regular wage like everybody else instead of making them rely on tips. But it doesn't appear that the majority of Americans are on board with that idea, even though, again, there's been this tipping fatigue. Um, According to uh, a recent survey, um, those in the survey say they seem to enjoy tipping because they uh, say it gives them control over the uh, type of service they receive. 88% believe tipping is fine. Uh, for meals and for waiters and waitresses to do a good job. Uh, 80% reward good service with tipping. 69% believe the practice leads to better service. 53% believe that a smaller tip is a way to send a message about subpar treatment in a restaurant. 2,500 diners are surveyed uh, on this. Um, They found that diners are not a fan of automatic tips you know some restaurants will do that if you have a large party uh they will uh at some restaurants now they'll do that regardless of the size of your party they'll add an automatic gratuity onto the bill not a fan of that and uh, of all age groups baby boomers tip the least according to this survey but uh, that was uh, kind of interesting so even though there is this uh you know, form of tipping fatigue We're not ready to give up the tipping culture just yet, at least according to uh, diners. Although this is kind of interesting. 
Um, talk about tipping as a reward for good service. Um, you know, the best reward for good service is to go back and patronize a particular restaurant again and again. And this was kind of interesting. A separate survey, 2,000 adults, finds that the average American has not tried a new restaurant in five months. We tend to go where we're comfortable, where we've gotten good service and good food in the past. Uh, the average American has not tried a new restaurant in five months. Um, 56% of those in the poll admit they are creatures of habit. Um, although, sometimes... Surprises can be a good thing. 65% admit that they have discovered a new favorite uh, after their original plans fell through. Maybe you plan on going to one of your favorite restaurants. You can't get in. It's booked. It's full. Uh, You have to go somewhere else, and you find a new favorite. So, you know, that's five months uh, on average since we've been to a, a new restaurant. And why do we go out to eat? Because we don't want to do the dishes at home. (laughs) Researchers from the American Psychological Association have found, see if you recognize yourself in this, 40% of us choose to be ignorant when confronted with our own selfish behavior. Like, for example, forgetting, quote-unquote, forgetting to do the dishes. (laughs) 40% of us choose to be ignorant when it comes to confronting Our selfish behavior. The study of willful ignorance involved more than 6,500 participants who were presented with choices that had consequences for other people. Um, And uh, researchers said uh, that, and this was kind of interesting, people choose ignorance when they want to continue thinking of themselves as nice people. We want to think of ourselves as nice people. uh, Even though we... Our inactions cause uh, an inconvenience for for someone else. That's why we conveniently forget to do the dishes. If we can convince ourselves that we forget to do the dishes, uh, then we can continue to think of ourselves as nice people. If we own up to the fact that we just didn't want to do it and let that job fall to someone else, then we're not so nice. So this is why we convince ourselves that we forgot to do the dishes. Does that sound... Does that sound familiar, anyone? I know that's a tough thing to admit, but kind of interesting. There you go. Uh, Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started here. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Mostly sunny today with a high in the low 40s. Just a few clouds tonight, uh, low in the upper 20s. The sentencing hearing was held in Hancock County Common Pleas Court for a man found guilty last week of murdering a police drug informant in Finley. 50-year-old Eric Reed was convicted of aggravated murder and two counts of having weapons under disability. Authorities say Reed shot and killed a man in 2017 as retaliation after the man gave police information resulting in drug charges against Reed's nephew. Reed was sentenced to life without parole on the aggravated murder charge and 24 months for the two counts of having weapons under disability. Get more on the case in the story on our website. Election Day is less than a week away, and there's a poll indicating how Ohioans are feeling about a statewide issue on the ballot. According to a poll by Baldwin-Wallace Community Research Institute, 58% of likely voters are in favor of passing Issue 1. It's a constitutional amendment which covers the right to one's own reproductive medical treatment, including abortion, legal protections for reproductive medicine providers, and abortion at any stage of pregnancy if necessary for the protection of the life of the mother. Tatiana Cash, Toledo. The Fall Art Walk will be happening in downtown Finley on Friday. Finley really embraces the arts, whether it's performing arts or visual arts or vocals. No matter what it is, that's something that I really love about this community. Danielle Wilkin with Visit Finley says artists will be located throughout the downtown area and local shops, restaurants, and businesses. And the downtown art anchors, Finley Art League Marathon Center for the Performing Arts, and the Jones Building Artist Studios will be open for the public. Danielle was on with WFIN's Chris Oaks to discuss the Fall Art Walk, and you can hear that full conversation and get more details about Art Walk in the story on our website.
Marathon Petroleum is reporting its third quarter numbers. The oil refiner headquartered in Finley is reporting net income of $3.3 billion for the third quarter of 2023, compared with net income of $4.5 billion for the third quarter of 2022. Marathon President and CEO Michael Hennigan says their third quarter results reflect their commitment to growing shareholder value. Get more in the story on our website. Don't forget, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. Matt Demchak for 1330 WFIN and 95.5 FM. So our cover story this morning, recently Blanchard Valley Hospital is named one of the best in the state according to Newsweek's latest rankings. BBHS President CEO Myron Lewis is with us this morning to talk about what that means for both patients and patients. And for staff, and uh, Mr. Lewis, thanks very much for uh, dropping by. We appreciate it. Great to be here. Thank you. You know, I was looking at uh, at these rankings, and uh, I, I thought it was kind of interesting some of the metrics uh, that were used uh, in this, the way they uh, compiled uh, these uh, rankings. Uh, first of all, uh, government data on outcomes, Medicare, Medicaid patients, a lot of rankings will you know use that data, and uh, surveys from patients, but also... Uh, surveys from doctors and healthcare professionals and who they would recommend that, that uh, they think uh, places that they think uh, are, are highly regarded outside of their own um, employers. So this actually is a, a, a significant gauge in the respect within the healthcare community. Yeah, in the, in the medical field, absolutely. Yeah. You know, Chris, you shared, you know, um, Medicare and Medicaid, you know, all the information that they have is publicly available. Mm-hmm. And so outside organizations look at that data and they compare organizations yeah. against organizations. And we actually received two awards, one for a top ambulatory surgery center in america and one of the top hospitals so there's over uh six thousand um surgery centers in the united states and this or um this uh, ranking actually identified the top 550 across the whole united states and in hospitals there's over four thousand, and they rank the top 600 hospitals so Mm -hmm. it's really a pleasure to be in both of those buckets right for our community uh when you look at the top 20 in the state of ohio uh right up there at the top you've got the cleveland clinic you've got uh ohio state's wexner medical center one and two probably not a big surprise (laughs) but uh i think uh blanchard valley hospital is uh number 16 you're up there in pretty good company well, you know, there's some pretty good names there, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, care is so personal and, and it's and it's um, also provided locally. And to have exceptional care like that in your local community really sets um, our greater community apart from many others. So we really, you know, having a hospital of that st- stature locally to get good quality care where, you know, we get audited externally. We don't ask for the audits and to be put in the likes of Cleveland Clinic is a real positive thing. Yeah. Um, again, the benefits to patients are kind of obvious. I mean, mm-hmm. that uh, is kind of self-explanatory when you can tout these uh, awards and these numbers and so on. But this is a benefit for staff as well. I mean, it's got to be a, a terrific uh, shot in the arm, uh, to use a medical turn of phrase, uh, for uh, those who provide the care on a daily basis. Yeah, if you think about what makes an organization different, what's our differentiator at Blanchard Valley Health System? It's our people. Um, they are the ones that make the impact every day to the people that walk through many, many doors. We touch over 4,000 lives a day in the community, in the greater community, and it's our staff that is doing that. We have a staff of 3,200 people working in in Hancock County and the surrounding eight counties, and it's through them that the exceptional care is delivered. Uh, Again, now this, uh, the Newsweek rankings uh, look specifically at the hospital, but Blanchard Valley Health System much more than just the hospital, obviously, and you're constantly looking at ways of improving that uh, patient yeah, experience. That's a, Chris, that's a really good point. I mean, because when you think of what's really our part of that secret sauce for us is continuous improvement. 
always looking at how we can change. The industry is changing very quickly, mm-hmm. all on its own, and we have to keep up with that. But we also have to challenge ourselves to be better each and every day. And so our staff, um, just this year, I think they brought over 1,800 ideas from the staff um, that have been implemented to create change within our organization. And when you have that much support of your staff to driving change, it's pretty powerful. When you talk about uh, the... Uh suggestions or ideas uh concepts that you've implemented that have come from the staff what are some examples i mean does anything immediately jump to mind as something that has been implemented uh in terms of procedure policy that kind of thing that has come directly from the staff well i tell you there is so many of them i think of one you know sometimes what we just finished is a deep dive in a program where we pulling a PI team and the clinical staff, the support staff, and break apart all the components of the care delivered. And we break them down into each and every step. And after you do that, we say, well, how many steps do we have? Well, we have 47 steps. How can we, what steps can we reduce? What can we make more efficient so that the customer gets a better experience? That is the kind of the work that's sometimes done Mm -hmm. to drive change. We've done that in three or four programs this year already just to try to improve the the processes. That's really interesting because I I would imagine most patients uh, would not, if you were to ask uh, most patients how many steps in that process, uh, that that would not be the number. I mean, 47, that's a, you know, a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. A lot of stuff goes behind the scenes and how can we simplify it yeah. and, and bringing new technology to help support it? Um, obviously, the entire healthcare system is uh, coming out of a very challenging time uh, with the uh, pandemic. When you look at uh, at post-pandemic and the way you are doing what you do in terms of efficiency and quality of care, how did all of that kind of change the way you look at this today, or did it? Well, yes, it definitely did. I think one thing is that when through COVID for 18 to 24 months, we were at one focus. Yeah. So for the past year, we really tried to get back to the basics, relook at what we're doing, reevaluate it, and make as many improvements or changes as we could through that. So we're really focusing on strengthening the base. But we also realized when we focus on a few things, we can do them really well. And so we want to stay focused and, and laser focused as an organization. What are the biggest challenges uh, in this post-pandemic era? Oh, boy. You know, I think there's just continuous change for us. I think it's with like a lot of other organizations. Um, a lot of people don't realize that a health system or hospital is really a, a price taker, if you will. In other words, Medicare is a set rate. Medicaid's a set rate. Our insurances are set rates and fees. And we're, we uh, those are locked for years. But we've seen inflation hit us pretty hard. Um, and so our costs have gone up dramatically, 10, 15 percent. But our reimbursement has not adjusted. And that's a lot of people don't realize that. They think we can raise our prices. If we raise our prices, we actually don't get paid anymore. Um, so we really have to look at our efficiencies and how can we be as efficiently as possible to meet our community's needs. Because that's a, that's a big delta that all organizations are dealing with right now. And yeah, and the challenge becomes uh, being able to provide the care on the same scale Mm -hmm. as what lands you on lists like this uh, moving forward as those costs escalate uh, across the board. Yeah, so it's an important balance and not an easy balance to make. I mean, I think we're all faced with that, but we we are focused on it um, as a team and as an organization continue to be strong and, and drive forward through adversity. I mean, we've gone through adversity before. You know, we, we, we're going to continue to move forward in the future. You mentioned uh, that the Newsweek ranking is just one of many uh, awards and accolades, and we've talked about a number of them uh, on the air uh, before, kind of, you know, patting ourselves on the back that we are fortunate to be part of a community uh, that has a uh, healthcare system that is a hospital and a healthcare system is so uh, highly regarded um but what is when when you learn of uh one of these awards or these recognitions what kind of goes through your mind 
I mean, well, you don't do it for the awards and yeah. the recognition necessarily, but it's always good to be recognized. Well, it, it is. I think it's good for the team to be recognized for all the work that they do mm-hmm. each day and, the, and the, really the passion they bring to their work and their ability to make a difference each and every day. Because our work is very meaningful, very purposeful, and very powerful. So, you know, we don't know when the awards are going to come. Mm-hmm. They don't, uh, we learn just a couple of days before they publish it. Yeah. Um, and so to hear it, it's a good positive surprise. And so I think that um, is very good for the team and good for us to know that we're on the right track and we're doing the right thing for our community. Again, uh, Blanchard Valley Health System President CEO Myron Lewis uh, this morning, as you mentioned, Blanchard Valley Health System or Blanchard Valley Hospital named one of the best in the state, according to Newsweek's latest rankings. You want to learn more, we've got it linked up at our webpage. You can go to goodmornings.net. Mr. Lewis, thanks very much for dropping by. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, just under a week to go until Election Day, and this is something that you don't necessarily see very often on the local ballot. There is a Democrat running in a contested race for city council. Joining us this morning is Third Ward Council candidate Sean Mason. Sean, thanks very much for uh, dropping by. We appreciate it. Good morning. Thanks it has been me. quite a few years since uh, there was a uh, an elected Democrat on city council. I was trying to think uh, maybe Mike Iyer, and that's been uh, I'm not even sure. I can't find years ago. data yeah. that far back. Yeah, so it's been uh, quite a bit. First of all, um, kind of introduce yourself and what you feel you bring to the table as a city council candidate, potential city council member. Absolutely. I'm Sean Mason. I'm uh, running for city council, third ward. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that I bring to the city someone who's going to listen for a change. I've knocked on a lot of doors lately, mm-hmm. and I consistently hear a couple things. The first is you can't fight city hall. And the second is that they're going to do what they want to do. And I think that the people of Finley are ready for someone that is willing to lead by listening instead of that's of following the status quo in the party line. Do you have a, um, a platform in the sense of uh, specific things that you would like to change or see done differently? I mean, is that just a, a general statement or are there some specifics that yeah. you can nail down? I mean, specifically, I think the first thing that I like to, um, to implement with the help of the other council members, of course, mm-hmm. is more transparency into the process. Um, and more engagement with with the actual population of Finley. You know, I think the mayor has um, has started encouraging the people on council to start holding ward events, right? And uh, and get some engagement. But I don't think that's there's a whole lot of that going on right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I know I talk to the people of the third ward, and there's not a whole lot of engagement right now. Is that the main thing that led you to file to to run in the race to jump in uh, the race? I, honestly, I, I don't think that. Uh, any specific policy thing was the reason that I wanted to to jump in and run. Mm-hmm. You know, what was it then? I, I mean, what, I've what kind of been. You decide to. I had someone tell there. me one time that if you want if you want to actually have uh, have a, a multipli- multiplicative effect, you have to lead. Mm-hmm. And so I have a long experience of leading in my professional career, and I I, I joined Hancock Leadership and, and completed that process. And I and I was really surprised by the the amount of of organizations that just wanted help. Mm-hmm. And that that time and effort was really the things that the, that people wanted, and I think that the the city needs. And so that's really I have a lot of that to offer. And I want I have four daughters, and I want them to grow up and be happy and to live in Finley and raise my grandchildren here selfishly. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, as we kind of alluded to earlier, uh, you are well aware uh, that having a D after your name uh, means that it, it's it's going to be an uphill battle. Um, why, how do you convince in a largely conservative town that doesn't elect Democrats? Many times you don't find Democrats even running for competitive office. How do you convince people to, uh, vote blue, uh, in the third ward? Yeah. I mean, I've been told many times that a Democrat doesn't have a chance in family and I don't, I don't agree with that. Because, I mean, mainly, I don't think that party politics has anything to do with, with local government. Mm-hmm. I don't think that there should be Republicans, Democrats on city council. I think there should just be leaders. Mm-hmm. And, I, and that message was really resonated when I talked to people. The big emotional issues that separate the parties aren't things that we're going to be legislating on city council. And people want somebody that's going to take care of their money. 
right? Mm-hmm. And I'm fiscally conservative. And, and people, more importantly, want somebody that's accessible and, and somebody that cares. And I think that I offer those things in spades. Uh, you mentioned the uh, mentioned you were fiscally conservative. Um, how big is uh, is that? How how significant is that uh, to your message? Again, to make sure that people understand that uh, the the narrative for Democrats on the federal level and the state level is not necessarily the same as a Democrat running locally. Agreed. Uh, you know, I've always been an independent voter. I've been an issue voter my whole life. And I registered as a Democrat to run purposely. And I realize now that that's, that's kind of hard mode, right? <laughs> but, but I did that intentionally because I wanted to, not to signal to voters that I was different than them, which is, I think, the message that you're, or the, the point you're trying to make, mm-hmm. but that I'm different from the yeah. current elected officials that they have. I'm a, I, may be, I may be a registered Democrat, but I still pay bills, yeah. right? And so I'm going to treat your money like my money. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an important message that people care about. Obviously, you're in it to win it. I mean, nobody uh, jumps in the race necessarily with the intention not to uh, win. I mean, you know the uh, the headwinds uh, that that you face. Can you affect some of that change, win or lose? I mean, I'm thinking uh, just within the last week. Again, you look at the uh, at the federal uh, level, we are a year out from the presidential election, and we just had a, a Democrat jump in the race for the presidential nomination. He's not going to get it from right. uh, from President Biden, but that may not necessarily be the point. Can you affect some of this change just by getting into the race and talking about these things? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think I can win. I, I would never ran if I didn't think I can win. Right. You know, I think the, the, the winds are shifting a little bit in Finley. And I think that, um, you know, they, they say the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Mm-hmm. I think people are ready for something unexpected. And I think that re- is going to resonate. But more to your point, win or lose, I hope people recognize that I'm passionate about Finley and that I want to contribute. And whether that means, you know, serving on a, on a, a Parks and Recs board or some other committee or, you know, helping with Habitat for Humanity, I hope people re- recognize that I want, to, I want to help and I want to lead. Has, uh, has the experience in, in getting into the, this race been what you expected? I mean, what, has, what do you take away from this uh, a week from now, whether you win or lose? What do you take away from the experience? Yeah, so, you know, starting the process, I expected there to, to be a lot more division, honestly. And I've realized that when I talk to people face-to-face, they find that we have more in common than we have different. Mm-hmm. And I've yet to find anybody. I, I take that back. I have. I had. I did have one person call me a communist and kick me off their porch. But <laughs> past that, you know, I can find common ground with people, and I think that that's a message that's important for our city as a whole and our country as a whole. Is that we have more in common than we have different, and it's time to start remembering that and leave the extreme fringes to the fringes. We will leave it there again. Uh, Third Ward Council candidate Sean Mason. You see his name on the uh, ballot uh, for uh, the city council race in about a week or so. Uh, Sean, thanks very much for uh, dropping by and uh, introducing yourself. We uh, look to hear much more in the future. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Kind of a a post-Halloween story here, a postscript on the uh, spooky holiday. The Castle House in Alpena, Michigan, is available on Airbnb, advertised as bursting with charm. But a group of women who stayed at this particular Airbnb claim that what it is really bursting with is something entirely different. Bats. Bats. Bursting with the uh, women filed a lawsuit against Airbnb and the owners of the home saying they suffered a sleepless, scream-filled night when they rented the home for their high school reunion. According to their attorney, John Marco, this whole thing played out like a scene from a Halloween horror movie. Um, (laughs) All the women had to get rabies shots after the uh, invasion in late July. Uh, They were basically attacked by the bats while they slept. (laughs) That's scary, isn't it? 
the uh, law firm says an exterminator was called in and discovered an entire bat colony in the attic of the home that had been there for years. Oh, man. I don't know whether uh, this uh, particular establishment is uh, still available for rent on Airbnb, but it is the Castle House in Alpena, Michigan. Might want to avoid. (laughs) Uh, Let's see here. That'll not get you a good review. That's... Uh, Speaking of homes in Seattle, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Irwin uh, decided that uh, he was going to build himself a home. Problem was, he didn't have permission to build the home where he built it, nor did he have any equipment. But these things are easily solved. Number one, who needs permission? Number two, when there is a construction site nearby, you can just... Take the excavator to just kind of help yourself. (laughs) Mr. Irwin allegedly used a stolen excavator to destroy part of a park to build himself a cabin. Uh, It is suspected the machine was taken from a nearby construction site. Um, Andrea Suarez, uh, one of the, uh, I guess she was a witness when police (laughs) arrived to to, uh, sort the whole thing out. Andrew said uh, that uh, Mr. Irwin was compliant with uh, police officers when they inquired about what he was doing, but he did tell police that he had permission to set up camp and build his cabin there in the park. He did not actually have permission. He was charged with theft of a motor vehicle, and uh, they found uh, on the property propane tanks for his cabin, Stolen credit cards. Oh, and yes, five pounds of weed. Five pounds of weed. <laughs> uh, you kind of knew that there would probably be a intoxicating substance involved in this. Can't build a cabin in the park, and you really can't steal an excavator to clear out the uh, area so that you can build your cabin. Speaking of uh, people and unusual living arrangements in seattle this also uh from from seattle homeowner this is a crazy story homeowner has been living in his van as his unpaid tenant allegedly rents his home on airbnb jason roth um has uh, is the owner of a three-bedroom home but he can't live in it because there is a a tenant that has been living in his home and has not been paying rent. Now, Mr. Roth originally listed his property on Airbnb as a way to raise money. He was charging like $400 a night uh, to uh, rent out his home. and uh, but, but he said he got a tenant, Kareem Hunter, uh, who has basically moved in and has only paid... of the $30,000 that he owes Airbnb fees, and he just won't live, or he won't leave. Um, Mr. Roth says, as a result, he's been relegated to sleeping in his van and sleeping on friends' couches. He he says, I just want to be back in my house. As as he decided to rent his home to pay uh, pay off his uh, student loan debt, Uh, but now... He says he has to pay the mortgage and his student loans while being unable to live in his home. <laughs> because the guy won't guy won't leave. <laughs> uh, file that under the category of sounded like a good idea at the time, but backfired. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's see. A couple of other items here from the uh, broken news this morning. This kind of caught my eye simply because it's a little unusual. Out of Park City, Utah, firefighters are often called in to rescue cats out of trees and things like that. But no, in this case, firefighters were called in to rescue a cat stuck in an unusual spot uh, earlier this week. A local family uh, called in rescuers to help their cat who was stuck in a heater vent in their house. Apparently had been trapped for some 15 hours 
before firefighters were able to gain access to the vent and uh, pull out Monty the cat, who has since been reunited with his family. Cats get themselves into all kinds of situations. I thought that was just uh, unusual. Cats stuck in trees, but cats stuck in a heater vent. Crazy. And finally, in the in the broken news this morning, uh, this is why you got to be careful if you are traveling to a country where you don't speak the language. It's really easy to get yourself into trouble. Case in point: a Russian-speaking tourist visiting Portugal found himself in a real jam when he mistakenly turned a pomegranate into a pomegranate. Apparently, this uh, gentleman was attempting to order a refreshing glass of fruit juice in Lisbon, but he uh, and, and he was relying on a language translation app to uh, tell the the person, I guess, at the restaurant what he was uh, looking at or looking for. Um, <laughs> but unfortunately, the app's translation hiccup transformed the word pomegranate into the Portuguese word for grenade. (laughs) This triggered a restaurant employee to call police, believing that they had a bomb threat on their hands. (laughs) Uh, Five officers arrived on scene and uh, arrested the bewildered tourist, handcuffed him, took him into custody, hauled him out of the restaurant. Thankfully, the whole thing ended it with a humorous twist as no actual weapons were found in his possession. Portuguese authorities even checked his hotel room and swept the restaurant for good measure. Um, but then they eventually figured out that it was just a translation error. So <laughs> keep that in mind next time you are ordering fruit overseas. Remember that not all language apps are uh, necessarily uh, up to the job I want to skip the pomegranate next time you're in Portugal. I'm just saying. All's well that ends well, but man, this guy has a story when he gets back home. You'll never believe what happened to me on vacation. There you go. Uh, That is today's broken news report. An update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. When you're behind the wheel, it's okay to rock out to your music, but it's not okay to interact with your phone screen and electronic devices while driving. In most cases, anything more than a single touch or swipe is against the law. That means no texting, no typing, no scrolling, no shopping, no browsing. If an officer sees a violation, they can pull you over. So remember, Ohio, phones down. It's the law. Time now for your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. Uh, It wasn't all that long ago um, that talking with other people about how much money you make in your job was kind of a a taboo thing. I remember uh, when I first entered the workforce, got my first job, one of the first things that my dad told me is don't talk about what you make is don't. Don't ask. You don't talk about it. It's kind of a it's a no it's a no no. Don't ask. Don't tell. The original don't ask. Don't tell. Uh, but these days, uh, that is not so taboo. A new survey from uh, Forbes Advisor uh, looked at multiple generations and how they uh, how comfortable they felt, how willing they were to talk about their salary, and uh, only thirty six. Well, it says here fifty seven percent of boomers. of boomers, 45% of Gen Xers believe that talking about money and how much money they make at uh, their job is is personal. It's not something that you uh, really talk about with others, reflecting that kind of mindset. However, um, 55% of millennials say they are comfortable discussing compensation with others, even uh, other coworkers. And that's the other thing. Is it is it different for you depending on whether you're talking about how much you make with a coworker or just a friend? Um, but older folks, much less likely to have those conversations than young people. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, for younger 
people, millennials, uh, they are much more likely to come right out and ask someone else, how much do you make? Only 36% of boomers would be willing to ask a coworker what they make. But, and this was the interesting twist on this Forbes advisor survey, while 55% of millennials are comfortable discussing compensation, and again, you can see that that trend line from boomers to Gen Xers all the way to millennials uh, becoming more comfortable with discussing this. 55% of millennials say they are comfortable discussing compensation. Millennials are also the group most likely to lie about their earnings. <laughs> uh, about half admit that they would lie to a friend or coworker about how much they actually make. So yeah, I mean it's it's not it's not a big stretch to talk about your how much you make if you're going to lie about it anyway. <laughs> uh, by comparison, baby boomers much less likely to lie. Yeah, they're less likely to talk about it to begin with, but when they do, only one quarter of boomers say that they lie. So three quarters are honest. Less likely to talk about it, but more likely to be honest when they do. So there is that. Well, it is kind of a bittersweet morning here uh, today because Sarah Sisser is with us for the final time as executive director of the Hancock Historical Museum. Sarah, moving on to uh, bigger and better things with an organization in Columbus that uh, focuses on uh, promoting uh, the arts uh, in the state of Ohio. Yeah, and really the creative sector at large. So um, I will be the executive director and CEO of Creative Ohio. And in that role, I will be advocating for um, more comprehensive funding and workforce development and just the advancement of the creative sector to include the arts and the humanities in organizations like the Hancock Historical Museum, which will certainly remain very near and dear to my heart. That uh, sounds like an exciting opportunity. So we wish you, you. certainly the uh, best of luck in, in that new position. And uh, this comes uh, as we are coming up on an interesting time or, you know, a busy time for the uh, uh, for the museum, obviously, with the holidays right around the corner and some things that we'll talk about. Uh, but then, of course, uh, during the month of January, you generally kind of uh, shut down to the public to refresh and reorganize, and there'll be quite a bit of that going on. Uh, we do, yes, and we have some weeks. great new exhibits planned, um, including an exhibit on being a 90s kid in uh, in Finley. So I know people have a hard time thinking about the 1990s as history, but it is, and we're getting a lot of engagement from a little, you know, a little bit younger demographic with that, and it's been a lot of fun. In fact, this Friday, we're going to have a, a public scanning opportunity for okay. anybody who was a 90s baby. Maybe okay. a 90s kid in Finley and ha- or in Hancock County and has some great photos that they want to share. You can come in Friday evening during Art Walk and we can scan them. We're going to have a, a 90s style pizza party uh, while we're scanning so um, people can come and enjoy that. But that's been a lot of fun. You know, the staff at the Hancock Historical Museum is so talented, so skilled. And all of those great programmatic offerings will certainly be continuing um, with without me at the helm. So I know that I am going to continue to enjoy attending a lot of the programs. So let's talk about uh, some of the things that are coming up in the uh, weeks ahead. Uh, we've got another uh, brown bag uh, lunch lecture coming up. That's right. What, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. tomorrow is our monthly brown bag lecture, of course, at noon, the first Thursday of each month. And we have with us tomorrow... Um, Bob Weinberg, and Bob is the past president of Flag City Honor Flight. He's a local veteran, and he will be talking about his personal experience serving as a sentinel at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is a particularly unique experience. Of course, very um, strict uh, credentials and guidelines for that Mm -hmm. service. Um, And so he'll talk a little bit about what that was like. He served... um, 1970 to 1971 in that role. It really is fascinating to hear him talk about uh, that experience and uh, some of the things that people think that they know uh, that may be uh, more legend than reality, but there are, I mean, it is uh, quite the honor to yes, be. Yes, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And of course, if you've been and watched that, um, mm-hmm. the Sentinel um 
perform their service um, at the tomb. It is really sort of awe-inspiring. Yeah. And um, so, yes, it will be a wonderful uh, way to ring in November, where we really do take some extra time to honor uh, our veterans. Obviously, with uh, Veterans Day coming up. Uh, and then you mentioned on Friday uh, the uh, scanning event with the... Uh, uh, with Art Walk in conjunction with Art Walk. Right. So, so, again, if you were a 90s baby, if you've got some neat 90s uh, memorabilia or photographs that you'd like us to scan or that you think you're thinking about donating, bring those in um, on Friday evening from 5 to 7. Okay. Uh, what else is going on in the month of November, first of all? Well, we also have our Veterans Day reception that we do each year, uh, November 12th. That will be a Sunday from 1 to 4. Um, we will have a few special artifacts out um, to honor our veterans, um, some of the uniforms and other artifacts we have um, from different wars and conflicts in which our local veterans served. Um, and we will also have with us Ron Ammons that day speaking, um, starting at 3.15, I believe, uh, again on the 12th. And Ron, if you haven't heard him speak, such a great local historian and has so many unique local veteran stories that he's documented on a lot of oral histories. Of course, his father was a veteran, um, I th- which I think really inspired um, that work in him. But he'll be talking about some of those stories. Uh, from there, and I think that pretty much uh, covers uh, November. Yep. Um, but we want to mention, even though this isn't the month of November, very early in December, the Victorian Christmas tea is coming up. That's right. Our so. wonderful group of volunteers, the Victorian ladies, who for Literally decades did uh, our Victorian Christmas dinner have transitioned that into more of a formal tea, which will be um, Saturday, December 2nd um, at the Hancock Historical Museum campus in the Davis Homestead, one of our historic houses. Um, And the theme for that is a farmhouse Christmas. And um, they always do such a wonderful job with every detail of an event. And I know that's going to sell out quickly. So that will be from one to three in the afternoon on Saturday, December 2nd. And you can purchase uh, your tickets or your reservations for that now. Okay. Uh, So don't miss out because uh, seating is limited uh, for that. And as you mentioned, it will sell out as it does uh, every year. And uh, then, of course, as we come up on the uh, holiday season, would be remiss, and we want to bring it up now because already people are starting to think about uh, shopping. Membership to the museum uh, is always a great gift. Um, you've got a lot of Finley uh, stuff, the gift shop. We do, in the gift shop, yeah. Very Finley-focused gifts, including, including Finley glass, which is always a nice gift to give somebody who mm-hmm. sort of has a little something of everything. Um, but memberships, we have added some new membership uh, benefits this year, and those include reciprocal benefits to many museums throughout the country. We're a member of the NARM, um, which gives you, again, those reciprocal admission benefits to um, hundreds of institutions throughout the country, if that's something you enjoy doing when you're traveling. So definitely want to take a look at that as a great gift option. And uh, as we mentioned, the uh, museum is closed in the month of January. So if you want to uh, pay a visit to the museum uh, it won't be long before you know you're all decked out for the holidays. You've got a Christmas open house coming up uh, in December, and uh, the last classic movie night of the year. That's right, Christmas open house December 9th and 10th, and the classic movie night in December will be December 15th at seven o'clock in the evening. But our last day open uh, for the year will be December 22nd. So if you have family coming in that you'd like to share a little local history with them, that week of December 18th is the probably the best week to do that before we shut down. Right. Uh, again, uh, Sarah Sisser with us uh, for now, the executive director of the uh, Hancock Historical Museum, the preview of upcoming events through November and into the holiday season. We have a link up on our webpage for more information about all of those uh, events. Sarah, thanks very much for dropping by. As always, we appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day at our webpage, thatisgoodmornings.net. Not only that, you can connect with us on social media, sign up for a daily email newsletter and more. Check us out again, goodmornings.net. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.